big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to thank our newest patrons over on Patreon, Magali, Rachel, and Judy. And a huge shout out to our patron, Sarah, who upgraded their pledge. Now, in case you missed it, we are doing our first ever live show on November 18th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time at Caveat NYC. Early bird tickets are $18 and patrons get a 15% discount. And for those of you who aren't in New York, don't worry. The show is going to be live streamed for $10 and you can watch the video on demand for a whole week following the event. Tickets are available at the link in the show notes and we cannot wait to see some of you there and finally meet you in person. And now, enjoy this week's episode, covering the first half of the 1996 Emma, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, with our guests Jillian and Yolanda from the Pemberley podcast. All right, so should we jump right into it? I think so. Okay, perfect. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma! 1996. The 1996 Emma starring Gwyneth Paltrow and a slew of other people that I was not expecting to be in this movie. (laughs) Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen books and seen many Jane Austen movies. And I, Molly, am reading all of Jane Austen for the first time through this podcast. And today we are actually joined by two other people. Yeah, we have guests again. We're so excited to welcome our guests from the Pemberley podcast, Jillian and Yolanda. Welcome. Yay. Hello. Thank you for having us. We're so excited to have you guys here. Um, I feel like it's been a long time in the works that we have two Jane Austen podcasts together in this one place discussing Janie herself and all of her works. Yeah, I think we were saying before we started recording that this is like a true like bi-coastal, you know, cross-continental love fest. Yes. So speaking of love, we have a couple questions we ask all of our guests before we get into the Jane Austen content about their relationships with Jane Austen, starting with what is your relationship to Jane Austen? Jillian, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Um, my relationship to Jane Austen. I mean, I feel like it it started with a fizzle in like sixth grade for me, which is when the 2005 Pride and Prejudice came out. And that was kind of the first time I was exposed to it. And I was a big, you know, like consumer of like period things and princess things and gown things. And so this at this time in my life, this is kind of like the role that this fulfilled. And I watched the movie and I kind of didn't get it at all. Like I they talk so fast and so quietly. And I was like, OK, I wish I like knew what was happening And it wasn't until I was going into college when the Lizzie Bennet Diaries came out that it really started to mean something to me. 
And I was like, this is amazing. And then I did a very nerdy thing. And my college offered a Jane Austen English class that I took. And that kind of like really cemented my role in the forever fandom. And I I gained a a much bigger appreciation for the 2005 film. I love that film. And it does so much better on a second watch. (laughs) Yeah, we've we've found that a lot of other people have had that experience. Yeah, cool. Um, My relationship to Austin was probably a little later. Um, I was first introduced to the 2005 Pride and Prejudice in college. So that's when I first watched it. It was like this whole girls group who were like, we're going to watch Pride and Prejudice. And I was like, what is this? Um, but then I went and it's I think it's so much fun to watch like with a group, too, because they're all like reacting in real time and they're pointing out the details that that they've seen over and over that you're watching for the first time. So that was a lot of fun to watch it in that setting. And I think from there, that's where I kind of got more into Austin. And around the same time then is also then when the Lizzie Bennett Diaries came out. And that was also kind of just a continuation of like, oh, great, more Austin like content. Um, so then it was really around that time that I had uh, maybe a couple years later that I met Jillian and we were just talking like, hey, maybe we should like do a podcast about the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. And it kind of then expanded beyond that into greater Jane Austen works. But um, yeah, I feel like it, it kind of started with that adaptation and has only grown from there. That's actually a a great segue. Do you want to tell the listeners a bit about your podcast, the Pemberley podcast? Yeah, we uh, we started it in 2016. So we're about seven years almost in into this process. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I think we at this point, we kind of check in with each other after everything we cover. And we're like, still still want to do it. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going. (laughs) Um, So that's kind of our method at this point. But yeah, we currently we cover uh, Jane Austen adaptations, and we've also expanded into Regency adaptations, mainly just to include Bridgerton in the mix because it's so fun and popular. Um, but yeah, we've been doing this for a long time, and we've covered different books and TV shows and movies. We've been able to interview some of the people behind of these projects, so that's been really great. I think just as fans of these things, just to hear more of like the behind the scenes of the process of how things were made or or what was an author thinking when they adapted something. That's a great segue into asking our next question, which is what is your favorite Jane Austen content? That includes anything from a song based on a Jane Austen novel to a book itself to your favorite movie version. I think you guys may have both answered this with your answers to what's your relationship to Jane Austen, but feel free to pick something different. I mean, 2005, I mean, I um, I have had to purchase a number of the Jane Austen movies on my, I, I use YouTube account instead of Amazon, but um, I've had to purchase a number of um, Jane Austen or other like period films just so that I, I always have access to them. Like, I'm very excited that you know, Pride and Prejudice is back on Netflix right now. But um, like Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 one is one that I've had to buy. Same with the 2020 Emma. And and I think that also the Lizzie Bennet Diaries will always be one of my favorite web series. So that one I don't have to because it'll live on YouTube forever. But that's that was one where it really like it really made Pride and Prejudice break out for me. And so um, that's another strong favorite of mine. Additionally, some books that Yolanda and I have covered on the podcast, I think have definitely made my way into favorite Jane Austen adaptations, which is there's a, a crazy talented author named Sonali Dave who's written 
um, the Rajay family series. And she basically has written like modern sort of Bollywood versions of some of Austin's greatest hits. And, and those books are, I think, some of my favorite adaptations as well. That's awesome. I would say over the past like year or two, um, Emma 2020 has actually kind of jumped up to first for me as far as like what is my favorite amongst everything <laughs> so I feel like that also even jumped up to like my top five on Letterboxd and I was like okay yes this movie really means something to me <laughs> so um, I think the 2005 Pride and Prejudice definitely was like the one in my heart for so long um, but then Emma 2020 kind of came in and just like slowly crept in and, and took over oh that is fantastic I cannot wait to watch it same I'm so excited I think what's special about movies like the 2005 uh, Pride and Prejudice and the 2020 Emma is that they something about them just lends themselves to being more accessible to the modern mind I don't really know what it is exactly I'm sure there's tons of scholarship on this but yeah I just feel like they're more widely consumable yeah, it's what we like about a lot of these adaptations, too. And it's part of why we we like to cover adaptations specifically on our podcast, because I think when you really read the books, Jane Austen's books, it's actually a lot easier to read than you might think for something that was written at that time. But sometimes the idea of reading the books can be very intimidating. And there's something that's just way less intimidating about watching a movie or a miniseries or reading like a contemporary romance novel and, you know, especially like I was saying about the Lizzie Bennet diaries and, and Sonali Dave does this in her books as well. Like when you bring it to a modern setting, the social dynamics really like mean a lot more to you when it's brought into like something that's more contemporary. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so our next question is, which Austin character do you relate to the most? I kept trying to take um, like BuzzFeed quizzes or any kind of quizzes just to figure this out and kept getting wildly different answers <laughs> um, so I was like okay there's no consensus here on which Austin character I am I think probably in my heart though I am Charlotte just because like the practicality of who she is and everything that how she approaches things in a very logical manner I think at my core that that is who I am and that's who I relate to I'm like I get her choices <laughs> that's great no I I have always felt sort of like sort of loved the most and sort of like felt close to Lizzie Bennett and I'm sure a lot of people have as well. But I'm like, she's that's, a relatable queen. <laughs> she's a relatable queen. And so that's that's the answer I'm going to go with. That's a great answer. And those are that's actually very sweet because you guys picked best friends. Oh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I have to say, after watching this movie that we're about to talk about, I am Harriet Smith. And I'm a little bit Emma. So. Yeah, you are. Oh, that's sweet. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, I can't say that too loud out loud because, uh, you know, there's there's a certain um, level of flaw in character that I hope I don't carry from, from Emma. <laughs> but she's self-aware. Yes, she's at the end of the book. <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> um, And... Our final question for you guys is what is your hottest Austin take? Like, what is your take that kind of pulls you out of uh, the norm for how people think about these books? For example, one of our hot takes on our podcast is that Lydia Bennett is a tragic character. Mm -hmm. hmm. That's a good question. I have mine, so I, I can go first. Yeah, so yours first. It's, I, don't, I don't think it's a hot take. I think it's just like commentary on, on the characters but I think that 
Mr. Bennett is awful and that Mrs. Bennett doesn't get the credit she deserves for everything she's doing for that family and trying to get all her daughters married. And and, and she's she, trying yeah. to like get them to not starve. Yeah. And Mr. Bennett's just like, it's fine. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's not fine. So that I don't know. That's not really a hot take, but that's just like, you know, added commentary. Yeah, no, I think that is, I mean, it's definitely, I would say the correct take. <laughs> I personally took up early on a very incorrect take for um, <laughs> Mr. Bennett, which is that he's daddy and very hot. And like, <laughs> I was like a big fan. But in terms of like what he is actually doing in the book and in the time period, he's absolutely a neglectful parent. And like, I want everyone to know that I understand that. But he's also sexy, <laughs> especially played by Donald Sutherland. <laughs> It's also, I think, because he has a library. Oh, yeah. And like that. And he's just kind of like he stays out of the drama. And perhaps there's something a little bit subtly inherently sexy about that. But we had an interview recently where one of our guests referred to Mr. Bennett as an absentee father. And I like kind of in that vein, we were I was like rewatching the 2005 Pride and Prejudice recently. And I like saw that scene. I like really saw that scene where Lizzie is convincing Mr. Bennett not to send Lydia to stay with the foresters, with the militia. And he's like, she just needs to learn. No one's going to like hurt her. No one's going to try and take advantage of her. Famous last words. And I'm like, that's actually really stupid of you to say that out loud to another daughter and just be like, it's going to be fine. I re- I literally, I want peace and quiet here. Like, it's, it's pretty terrible. I don't know that I have like a crazy hot take. I think I was just thinking like, I wonder if, Elizabeth and Darcy would have actually worked in real life like after the events of Pride and Prejudice sometimes Mm. I think about that like they came a long way but I wonder if it's enough to have like a happy marriage if the class difference was just too much over time and like the expectations of the family yeah and like Lady Catherine didn't change she didn't go anywhere in fact Lizzie kind of like shook that hornet's nest right before getting engaged and uh you know, who, who knows if there's anything Lady Catherine could do to sort of take that out on the, the Darcy's. But I, I do question, yeah, if the social class difference, if, if the love really can overcome how different they really are. Maybe they left Pemberley. Maybe they like went to go live in the country and like just went away from everyone. I would like it if they could at least stay at Pemberley. I mean, <laughs> these manners are so far away from each other that I'm like, that's rural, right? Like for England, that's rural. That's pretty like wide open spaces as you can get. Right. I think one of the like linchpins of that relationship, there's like two things that I think sell me that Lizzie and Darcy could make it work. One is little Miss Georgiana acting as some Mm. glue between those two um, and making them both the softest versions of themselves. So I think that she would help. And number two, if you read the final chapter of Pride and Prejudice, it implies that Darcy and Lizzie basically ghost the rest of the Bennets except Jane and Bingley. Mm. (laughs) Like not entirely. They send them money and whatever, but they like don't invite them around often and Jane is too nice and invites her sisters around a lot and it's really mostly Lydia that they do this to but uh they they let Mary ends up married to some lawyer and Kitty apparently like chills out and matures a bunch and like can be a proper lady in society but I think like Darcy does quite a bit of avoiding the in-laws to keep their relationship working (laughs) Man, but what kind of a marriage is that where the the Bennett family goes from being like that to, yeah, we just don't talk to them anymore. And it's made things so much easier. 
Yeah, it is kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what's not sad? Emma. Emma. Happy <laughs> endings for all. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're here to talk about the 1996 adaptation of Emma starring famously Gwyneth Paltrow. And it was written and directed by Douglas McGrath, who is most famous for his work on Bullets Over Broadway. It is a movie that came out in the midst of a Jane Austen cinema craze, because if you look at sort of the dates of it, it coincides with a very popular BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, if you've ever heard of it. And even more famously, the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility that was starring Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, Hugh Grant, and the entire universe of British actors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This movie came out and received quite a bit of praise, but not quite as much praise as Sense and Sensibility. And there was sort of a mixed bag when it came to reviews of the movie, but Austinites to this day continue to watch it, particularly for uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's performance of Emma. So to start this pod, I guess we could go around in a circle and say what we think about the movie. <laughs> I have watched it twice now um, before we dive into the plot. I loved it. Uh, and we will talk about what I thought of the ending, but I thought the first 90 minutes were like perfect. I had a great time and I hated how much I liked Gwyneth Paltrow as Emma. I thought she was great. I mean, she's kind of perfect for the role, like in, in terms of like who we now know her to be. Mm-hmm. She she just doesn't, I don't want to say she's like not an actress anymore, but she's definitely taken a step back from acting and to focus on her empire. And I, it's a very Emma thing to do. Totally. Um, my thoughts on the movie, I, I feel like honestly, my overall thoughts are I'm like, it's all right. You know, it's okay. For a long time, I think it was our strongest Emma adaptation. You know, I feel like in addition to Gwyneth Paltrow, this is like a pretty star studded cast. Like you've got Tony Collette, uh, who is like hot off of Muriel's wedding and she's like on the rise as you're Harriet, who's a character who's also kind of constantly on the run. She's like kind of doing this for a while. She's Emma's protege. Alan Cumming as Mr. Elton, who was like perfect. Like it kind of felt like the film to me feels like a very well cast play. Like I kind of felt like I was watching a play in the theater unfold. And um, we were kind of like traipsing between manners. Um, But overall, I thought the film is all right. I feel like you know, definitely want to discuss this film and not give too much of a spotlight to Emma 2020. But like Yolanda was saying earlier, like it's an adaptation that's really grown on us. And so I just feel like this this felt like a sort of more basic interpretation of Emma. Yolanda? Yeah, I agree that it's a very like kind of it's very by the book. It's it's accomplishing what it wants to accomplish. It's really fitting within not just like Austin adaptations at the time of what they were all trying to do and mimic each other too of like, oh, everyone's doing Austin adaptations now. Okay, like what's our version? What's the US version of this? Or what could it look like? So I feel like it fits in nicely within kind of that context. But I think if you look overall, for me, it kind of becomes a bit of a forgettable film. Um, I had to go back and kind of watch and and watch through be like, wait, what what was the delivery of this line? Or what happened here? How did they portray a certain scene? So I think there's there's good things about it. And then, and then there's things that just overall feel like, okay, to me. Yeah. 
Um, this is a first for our podcast, but I actually very much do not enjoy this movie. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, it's an it's a Jane Austen adaptation, so it's a certain level of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love Emma, the book, a lot. And I love other adaptations, even though I haven't seen the 2020 adaptation and I'm very excited to. There are other fantastic versions of this story. I actually don't love Emma's Gwyneth's Emma. I think she's a little too snotty and not funny enough. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been holding this in from Molly for like a long time because we've been talking about getting to this film. And I think any problem with the film generally, even my problem with Gwyneth Paltrow's adaptation, like portrayal of Emma, I actually don't think it's a problem with the actors. They cast spectacular actors in this film. I think there's some choices creatively that I don't love. I think a lot of the acting choices were chosen to be very much too understated and the pacing's a little weird. And I think they cut some of the most iconic lines Mm -hmm. from the book, which I can already see Molly getting amped up about. I know. I just (laughs) rolled my eyes so loud our listeners could hear it. But if nightly is not nightly without if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more. He is not. Yeah. That was a scene I had to rewatch. I had to rewatch it scene to be like, I missed it. Yeah. No, I like they they obviously said it. (laughs) I was literally just now thinking, wait, did he not say that? And I just didn't notice it because I forgot everything I watched in this film. (laughs) No, 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 no. He doesn't say it. And it even I watched with my boyfriend, Mike, who listens to our podcast, but has never read a Jane Austen novel. And he's like, does he not say the line? (laughs) (laughs) Even Mike knew. Even Mike knew. So. Yes, I am so excited to talk about this movie. My take on it, my personal opinions on it should not lessen anyone's enjoyment of this film because it's just my opinion. And I think that there's a lot of reasons to love it, even if I don't personally. But this is a first for us because I have loved every adaptation we have so far covered on this podcast. Yeah, I think this is actually pretty exciting because it seems like we have a wide range of emotions on this, this group of guests, like on this movie. So I am excited to dive in. Yes. With that being said, let's do it. Yes. So we get to see the wedding in the first scene between Mrs. Weston and Mr. Weston. And it's a very brief little blip, but we're introduced to Emma. We're introduced to Mr. Uh, Woodhouse, who was very upset that there was cake being served at this wedding. We're introduced to Mr. Elton. We are introduced to Mrs. Weston and Mr. Weston. And this Mrs. Weston is chef's kiss. I love her so much. I think she is the narrator. Correct me if I'm wrong. I didn't think care enough to think about it at all um that's where I stand on that fair enough well and it's interesting because I and again like actually correct me if I'm like misremembering this but I feel like we only heard from the narrator at the very beginning and the very end it's not like it carried us through the rest of the movie so I feel like I heard the narrator's voice so little that it meant nothing to me who they could possibly be in the world yeah, I forgot that there was a narrator at the beginning when we got to the end. And I was like, um, we did a watch party on Discord with our patrons. And when the narrator started talking at the end, I was like, wait, 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 wait. That is not at all in the rules of this world. Why is there a narrator? Who is this? And someone was like, yeah, that's Mrs. Weston. And I was like, why? Oh, 
what is happening? I thought that was a very weird construct that they developed. I'll be honest. I had just watched the Barbie movie. And uh, in my brain, I was kind of like, oh, it's Helen Mirren. <laughs> it's not Helen Mirren. You know what? I feel the same way because it's funny that you say it's Mrs. Weston because I'm like, aren't narrators old? Like Mrs. Weston is like, it's still a young woman. Like, I feel like she's <laughs> yeah. too young to be the narrator. <laughs> yes. I thought it was Jane Austen. I was I was very confused. <laughs> The next scene, we get this like little paper mache globe that Emma has made for Mrs. Weston. And that kind of, it dictates some of the transitions, but not all of them because the transitions are always very different in this movie. Every time the transitions happened, Mike would just go, why are we in space? (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was weird and kind of weak sauce. And I was like, (laughs) well, because it's funny. And I've sort of noticed that in Emma adaptations there there's like a little bit more of like an artistic flair like there's kind of like paintings and drawings and like sort of still life Mm. transition moments um which is like interesting to me but also I thought the ones they used in this were kind of not great like it kind of looked like a kid drew everything I think yeah I think because Emma's supposed to be not good at art um, it made sense, but then her painting of Harriet later is gorgeous. So I, I, I didn't really get that. Um, in the next scene, we get Emma and Mr. Woodhouse wallowing about Mrs. Weston being gone. And Knightley arrives, played by Jeremy Northam, who is very handsome, I think. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm glad we're all maybe on the same page. That is true. Jeremy Northam is a very handsome Knightley. He's very stoic. Yeah, um, yes. that part of the adaptation, I think we can all agree they they like I said, the cast is great. It's not their problem. <laughs> I don't have a problem with them. <laughs> yeah, no notes. I do have some notes, but they're costume related and I will get there. OK, cool. <laughs> um, They go to sit by the fire and um, Mr. Woodhouse is complaining about Isabella and Miss, Mrs. Weston leaving him. And Emma's like, oh, you know, like she would have, of course, left when I'm so troublesome. And she says that Mr. Knightley loves to find fault with her like she's just joking around. And then he says, well, I'm practically your brother. Aren't I supposed to find fault with you? Which I was like, why are we doing this? They had to point it out. <laughs> I always find it super weird when adaptations of Emma feel the need to point out any family relationship between Knightley and Emma. It's like, you don't need to go there. The book doesn't. Right. Um, But it does kind of help set the scene for like their bickering relationship. I think they had to do that in case someone hadn't read the book and they're like, who is this guy? Why is there such a friendly relationship between them? That's not normal. But I don't like it. Emma then starts talking about how much she misses Mrs. Weston. And I wanted to draw attention to the intimacy between her and Mr. Knightley in this moment. And then the kind of nods to it along the way. He's like, he like leans in and he's like just whispering to her when he says, well, she's not far, which I thought was, it's just like, there's something about the way they're sitting here and, and their relationship. I think that their chemistry is very present. I don't know what you guys think about their chemistry. I, I my girlfriend was like, I didn't think they had any chemistry. I just think that Jeremy Northam is like a very sexy man. Yes. And I think that, you know, the, the brother-sister comment aside, which we are going to kindly overlook for the purposes sure. of this conversation. Like, I think he's very good at the leaning. He's very good at the eye contact and the nodding and, and the eyebrow work is like very mm. top tier. The smirking. The smirking is like very, very elite smirking. 
So I feel like, you know, it's, it's all, it's like the kind of very subtle gestures that I think a lot of like Austin crazed women look for in their, in their men, in their, uh, Austin hero, hero men. Um, I feel like he does a great job of like doing that, especially like if you think about the fact that he is sort of like in his like mid thirties, you know, like Mm -hmm. he's, he's been talking to women for a minute. And I think that the, the closeness that they have, I mean, I mean, it's almost like giving it away because like he, they're so familiar with each other that he feels like he has the liberty to lean in that close and whisper that low. And, um, you know, I think that he is a, a gentleman and wouldn't really do that with anyone, but he, he and Emma already have a certain kind of intimacy between them. I was going to just say that exact word. There is like the great intimacy between them that I think otherwise, if you hadn't established like a bit of like, yes, the brother sister dynamic of like, why isn't he an option for Emma? It's like, oh, because like they have this dynamic. It also would have been improper for them to also be together alone or for him to be leaning in. But because like there is such a sort of like mentor mentee kind of relationship to them, it's seen as like, okay, like they can they can get away with it. Totally. Yeah. I think I agree that uh, Jeremy Northam is just a very sexy, perfect sort of pitch of an Austin man. (laughs) I agree with Mel. I don't think they have like a ton of natural chemistry, but I do think that the work he is doing is certainly showing a level of care for Emma. I wish they were a little bit more playful with each other. I like a nightly Emma dynamic that's a little bit more bubbly and fun. Um, but that I I will not go too hard poo pooing on it quite yet. <laughs> okay, because I have things to say about the playful. I think they're very playful, but we'll get into it. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host, Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now, back to this episode. Um... 
Emma then congratulates herself on making the match between the Westons and says she plans to match up uh, Elton with someone. And then we cut to a party at Emma's house where we meet Mr. Elton. And Emma introduces him to Miss Smith, who is played by, as we said, Tony Collette. She asks him if he'll attend to Miss Smith throughout the night. And he says, if helping Miss Smith will help Miss Woodhouse, I will happily do it. And they really play up his flirting with Emma the whole time. And something that I noticed later on that I'll just talk about now is that a lot of what works in the book is that Emma, we are inside of her head. We are getting everything colored with her interpretation of it and when you're watching it from the outside like she's just a little dumb like she's just not catching these things that are actually quite obvious throughout the whole movie so it's just a completely different perspective that you're getting Mm -hmm. the Bateses enter and we get to meet Miss Bates and she is perfect everything that I had hoped for in a Miss Bates she is just spewing talking her laugh the giggle she does She's perfect. Emma then introduces Mr. Elton and Harriet. And when he uh, bows to her, he like looks at Emma. And it's, again, so obvious. Then we go to dinner and Mr. Weston tells Harriet the whole story of Frank so that us as the audience can get the story of Frank. And Harriet says the line, how lucky to have been blessed twice in marriage. It has been my belief that one loves only once. I am happy to be wrong. And he goes, not so happy as I, Miss Smith which I just thought was really sweet Mm. for Mr. Weston. Then Emma later says to Mrs. Weston that she wants to take Harriet under her wing. And uh, this kind of starts the parallel of Emma taking someone under her wing the way Mrs. Weston took Emma under hers and the goal that she has for her relationship with Harriet, which I think Mm -hmm. kind of is a little bit more clear here to me as a consumer Yeah. And I also think one thing this adaptation does do really well is I think there's a lot of fleshing out between Mrs. Weston and Emma that that sort of bond and you get you feel the loss that Emma's trying to fill Mm -hmm. in her life, like that hole in her life whenever she's with Mrs. Weston, because there's a really clear dynamic of love and care and trust there that is played very well by the actress who plays Mrs. Weston. I do like that Mrs. Weston is a more present figure in this adaptation. And throughout the film, she is like that mentor motherly figure of like, I have this issue. Like, who do I turn to? It's Mrs. Weston. And she's like the shoulder to cry on. She's the one who's like hearing all of Emma's woes and everything. And she's done that for her whole life. And she will continue to be that figure for her. It also gives a reason for us to get Emma's internal monologue, which in the book, we're just hearing through her. But in this movie, we're getting to see her just like say it out loud to her best friend. So that is another purpose she serves. The next day or whenever the next scene happens, we have Emma and Harriet walking together. And uh, Emma's asking Harriet about her parents. And she says that Mrs. Goddard says she cannot know them. Something I didn't realize was that Mrs. Goddard knows who her parents are this whole time and just isn't telling her that weird <laughs> That's really screwed up. It's it's funny. I feel like in any and all Emma adaptations I've ever seen, I've always like thought it was a little bit weird that Harriet is like gotten to this point in her life, which is like what? 17, like 18, maybe like mm-hmm. she's a, a young woman, like an old teen or really, really, really low 20s. But I get the sense that she's kind of younger than Emma, who's like 20. I think 21. she's like 16 or 17 in the books. Yeah. I still think that's a really long time to go without knowing who your parents are, especially considering she hasn't 
Like, she, it's not like she's been living at Mrs. Goddard's for forever. Like, she's new in town. And so I've always, like, just sort of not understood why she just doesn't know who her parents are. And it's part of Emma's fascination with her is she's like, ooh, she could be a gentleman's daughter. Like, this could be appropriate, but it could also not be. It's like a little bit of a, like, a Schrodinger's box about, like, where Harriet belongs in society. Yeah. And I think that it speaks to Harriet's character that she doesn't question much and she kind of just lets things happen to her a little bit as is her defining character trait in the entire story. I actually think this is also like where I think Toni um, Collette plays her. So she she does such a great job of playing her so ordinary. Like, you know, I think it, when Emma forms such a strong attachment to her, Knightley especially is like, why? Like, why? I don't get this like intense friendship. And I think that... Um, Emma's kind of looking for someone who feels like a blank slate to her to indoctrinate her beliefs and her um, her just like the way that she sees the world. Yeah. So um, then Miss Bates approaches and Emma is like, come on, we got to hide. And they hide behind their umbrellas. Then we cut to them walking through the apple groves and Harriet's like catching butterflies and talking about Mr. Martin. And Emma says this line, the Martins are precisely the sort of people with whom I have nothing to do. A degree or two lower and I might be useful to their families, but a farmer needs none of my help. So they are as much above my notice as they are below it, which I think is a very succinct way of summarizing why she doesn't like Mr. Martin for Harriet. Then he enters and he is perfect. And Emma doesn't say anything when he introduces himself. She just like completely turns her nose up at him. And then we get the first of many Emma internal thoughts being voiced over. And she says, come on, Harriet, we could do better than this. And it's like, oh my God, such a weird construct. Then later, Emma and Harriet are cross-stitching together and Emma starts shit-talking Mr. Martin and plants the idea of Elton in her head. And I loved the music here. It was like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Very scheming, very plots are being formed. I think the score was nominated for an Oscar for this film. I wouldn't be surprised. I think the two it was nominated for, and it won one, and I don't remember which, was score and costumes. I have questions about the costumes. Really? But we'll get there. Okay. Oh, I can't. <laughs> There's one there. character in particular I have a lot of feelings about. <laughs> Interesting. Who? I guess we'll get there, but I think it's so difficult to make you and McGregor look unattractive. Well, and they managed. They did it. <laughs> they managed. They did it. They I don't know it. how. And it's why. with the wig. It's the wig. It's, it's the yeah, it's, it's the like what the beast looked like when he turned into a human at the end of Beauty and the Beast in the Disney version is like kind of what Ewan McGregor looked like with that wig, but a little more like berries and cream of like the cut. <laughs> I, maybe this is a hot take, but I didn't, I thought he looked great. I I cannot condone that take, Molly. Like there's, there's so much about this movie that we can respectfully disagree about or agree on, but I watched this with Mike. My boyfriend is a huge Star Wars fan and a huge Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan Kenobi fan. He also loves Moulin Rouge. So when Ewan McGregor, like his name popped up on the screen, Mike got really excited. But when he showed up and like actually as Frank Churchill, I have several reactions that I wrote down because I thought they were all perfect. First, he was speechless for 30 seconds. Then uh, he said he looks like... Fabio, but the crazy glue edition. Oh my God. Then he said, he looks like he smells like soup. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the final one, and I think this is very true, is that he looks like Timothy Chalamet styled as Willy Wonka in the new movie. I mean, the list can go on and on. Yeah. But I mean, the 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 combo of the berries, the berries and cream is just so correct. Thank you. I can't. I mean, it's also a little bit like female politician hair. Yeah. Ewan McGregor has said like he's regretted this role, I think, partially because of the wig. So <laughs> and you know what's crazy? He could like theoretically he's perfect for it. Like he's like especially when you take into account like the context of like where he's at in his career. Like there are so many, not that this was people's first film, but I feel like this was a pretty big film for like Gwyneth Paltrow. Like we we're going to get Shakespeare in love in a couple of years. And I feel like there is a sort of like, I mean, to me at least like a clear, like Emma to Shakespeare in love, like pathway there. Mm -hmm. There is the same um, producer on it. So yes, Mm -hmm. there is a direct link. There literally, there's literally a direct link, but, um, you know, Ewan McGregor is just like kind of this up and coming, like handsome, young leading man type. And that's kind of exactly who Frank Churchill is. And he's really like, it's not even like, I think he's terrible. I just think he's not that memorable. You know, I feel like so many Ewan McGregor roles, I'm like immediately crushing on him, immediate crush, immediately. Yes. And I see this and I like, like he, he actually like, he, he is eclipsed by Jeremy Northam, I think. Mm-hmm. And two things. I completely agree with everything you said. And obviously we know it's not Ewan McGregor's fault because we've seen him charm the pants off of every woman in the world and a lot of other people who are not women in the world um, with numerous different roles. Uh, so this there's something about this performance that's just lacking. And then also on top of that, Jeremy Northam was allowed to have his own hair. Sure. <laughs> why, why did they? Why did they say you and you must put on this this Goldilocks Terran wig? I wonder if he looked too much like Jeremy Northam. Like I wonder if they look too short, similar. Short brown hair. Yeah. Mm. One thing I've noticed that happens in a lot of these Jane Austen adaptations, and this is not an across the board thing that happens with Frank Churchill and other adaptations, but they will have there's a lot of Austin books where there's a slightly devious hot character that's extremely charming at first but you realize it's not that great at the end and he is often described as hotter than our leading man great example of this Wickham and Darcy but you'll find in most adaptations of Pride and Prejudice they kind of underplay Wickham's hotness to play up Darcy's hot heartthrob status so in my head I make maybe they dressed it down you and McGregor so people wouldn't want her to end up with Frank Churchill and instead want her to end up with George Knightley but they should want her to end up with George Knightley because of the story well, but I also feel like there is a, a like portion of the story where you really are kind of supposed to be shipping them where you really think like they're setting Emma and um, Mr. Churchill up to be like kind of like the same, like cut from the same cloth. Like they really could be perfect for each other. This is just the guy. And and especially, I, I feel like they kind of have it in this adaptation. If they do, I literally kind of forget about it. But there's other adaptations where Emma's really hot to meet Frank Churchill. She's like, he didn't come to the wedding. Ugh, when am I going to meet him? You You got to meet him before me? And mm-hmm. it's like kind of a big deal because I feel like when you live in a small town, like the pool of hot guys is pretty small. And so yep. I get being excited about a guy who's like a like meaningful to your former governess and her new husband. Like, 
she loves them and and she wants to meet this guy but I think like low-key like she wants a hot guy around and there's nothing wrong with that yeah totally I think that's one of my main problems with this adaptation actually is that they the, the, the flirting to me between the two of them was just not present at all. And so it doesn't feel earned at the end when Mrs. Weston is worried about how Emma feels and like and Knightley thinks that she and him were in love. Like I was like, that's not earned at all. It just wasn't present. So but we'll we'll come back to it. Um, But yes, I agree with everything. Yeah. That, said. that was a long French Churchill tangent before he's even a- arrived or mentioned. But if if we wanted to talk about one of my biggest gripes with this movie, it's just Frank Churchill in general, yeah. which it shouldn't be because Ewan McGregor is perfect casting. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, but jumping back, the next thing to happen is uh, the painting of Harriet. And she is posed with a harp like an angel. And this is one of the funniest moments for me. Uh, Elton is like, oh my God, you've captured her perfectly. And then we pan <laughs> to what she's done and it's like an outline of her head. <laughs> I laughed out loud. That that part is very funny. <laughs> and then just to get the amazing juxtaposition between him and Knightley, Knightley comes up and goes, you've made her too tall. And it is perfect. Um, then they show it to her dad and he's like, uh, we have to get it framed. And Elton pops up and he's like, I'll do it. Then we cut to Emma just at the store and Harriet runs up to find her to tell her that Mr. Martin has proposed and she is so nervous and she's like, well, I I didn't know what to do. That's why I came to you. And Emma's giving her like, she's like, I'm not going to tell you, but and then like looks at her through her eyelid like she's like tilting her head, raising her eyebrows. She's like, but I mean, mm, mm, mm." it's like very proposed to me. I don't think. I would accept. I know I wouldn't accept. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like she goes lower and lower. Her chin tucks more and more <laughs> until she's like staring her down. Uh, it's intimidating. Well, even like the the kind of like um, purposeful mistake she makes of like, oh, your proposal from Mr. from Mr. Elton. Right. And she's like, oh, well, no, it's from it's from Mr. Martin. So it's like it's that whole thing of like, oh, it's not who I expected it would be from. So you should also be disappointed. Right. And then when when she decides to turn him down, Emma immediately is like, I wonder what Mr. Elton's doing right now. He's probably telling his family about you. Then we get maybe my favorite scene, Knightley and Emma doing archery, which is, of course, the cover image of this movie. It's just so hot. Also, I wanted to draw attention to the dress. And first of all, pink is her color. Hello, Barbie. Um, But second, there's like a weird thing going on where she's like got it clipped up a little bit. Is that just what is that? Do you guys know? I mean, I feel like the clip up isn't necessarily a style choice, I think. And I agree with you. I really love this scene because it's pretty active and it is Mm -hmm. very like Cupid of her too. And that's, I think, why it's on the cover. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's just a way to kind of like keep her hem close to her while she's doing something so active, like archery. Um, So I I think it's just like a a practical pinning. I noticed that during the the dance scenes too, she always has it pinned up. Oh yeah. I wonder if that, that must've just been a thing, which we should bring back because I like to wear floor length skirts, but I'm always like, what am I going to do when I have to go up the stairs? The problem is that we have too few layers nowadays. So if you did clip up all the way there, would it not show your right? You're exposing scandalously. <laughs> show your naked ankles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's a that's a great scene. It's also like one of Knightley's like top three iconic lines. 
um, where he says, like, men of sense do not want silly wives, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He also says, when they're so they're talking about um the proposal from Mr. Martin and he she's like well I saw her response and he goes Emma did you write her response <laughs> and she's like so what if I did also the fact that they are shooting arrows during this whole scene the more angry she gets or the more like she realizes she's done something wrong her her arrows just keep bouncing and it's a very uh physical metaphor for what they're talking about um and she misses her last shot and the dogs like get up and run away and he goes try not to kill my dogs and then he gives her this little smirk that like shows the playfulness between them which is going back to what I said earlier that I think there is a playfulness there he -hmm. always smiles at her after he says something particularly cutting my one problem with this scene is that I don't think he's mad enough at her for what she did to Robert Martin that's like a big fight they have in the books uh and he he clearly gets irked uh but i i think i would have preferred he get a little madder at her in this scene and not end smirking at her but i do agree that out of the context of what i wanted this fight to be that is a very cute moment Mm -hmm. the next thing that happens is the unveiling of the portrait that she drew of harriet or painted of harriet and mr elton is like clapping way long after everyone else has stopped clapping and so good and then they're having tea and she asks Mr. Elton to do a riddle for Harriet's book of riddles and Knightley is like you didn't ask me for one and she says your entire personality is a riddle I thought you overqualified (laughs) which was so funny then she gets the riddle it's the pacing of this is very quick up until the very end Um, she gets the riddle and she brings it to Harriet and we get the famous line now for the cream now for the cream (laughs) And they misinterpret the riddle as meaning that he is courting Harriet. Then they go to visit the Clarks, which are a poor, sick family. And Emma actually shows some genuine kindness here. She's like tucking Mrs. Clark in, feeding her soup. And Harriet is kind of sinking into the background, being very uncomfortable. When they leave, Harriet asks Emma why she isn't married. And is she's like, what, do you want to end up like Mrs. Bates? And Emma says that, Poverty makes celibacy contemptible, but I'm rich, so I don't need to, which, yes, I roll. It sucks, but I'm like, it sucks also that she's not like that wrong because right. what she sort of goes on to say in terms of like why she doesn't want to be married is she's like, I am more mistress of Highbury, Highbury, Highbury? Highbury. Heartfield, Heartfield. Yes. Oh, Heartfield. Yeah. Oh, that's right. No, no, it's fine. I got them confused so much. Highbury is like where they live, but Heartfield is like their manner. But she's like, I am like more mistress of Heartfield than most women are to their husband's estates. And she likes that. And I also feel like I just, I just want to like throw in just like for all the folks at home that Mrs. Bates or Miss Bates is played by Emma Thompson's younger sister, Sophie Bates. <gasps> And Mrs. Bates is played by their real life mother, who's also like a renowned actress in her own right. So we like it's part of Emma Thompson's just like hold on like most of the Austin adaptations in this time. Uh, That honestly raises this whole movie a grade in my book. Yeah. (laughs) Miss Bates is when we ask at the end who wins the movie. For me, one of my winners is Miss Bates or Sophie Thompson. She's played for laughs in a lot of other adaptations, but the Miss Bates in this movie is honestly like she's cringy, but she's really sad. 
Like she comes off very simpering. She is a, a tragic character in this. I think you get, you feel more of like her status in this and like just how low she is. And we'll get to the horrible scene later of like how much it does hurt when she gets knocked down. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then they run into Mr. Elton and Emma is like playing up Harriet's role in the visit to the Clarks and we get to see flashbacks. She's like, tell them what you did. And we flash back to Harriet just like dropping everything, which is very funny. Um, and then Emma goes, oh no, my lace. You two go on without me. And she like bends over to tie her shoelace and it's so over the top. And she starts walking behind them with a little child and she hears Elton saying, I love celery root. She like thinks it's going to be a proposal, which was hilarious. Then we cut to Emma with John and Isabella's baby. I do have to say that this movie has a tragic lack of John Knightley, who I love with all my heart. I like blinked and missed that scene, honestly. It was like, yeah. it's it's not everything, but it, it actually... It like weirdly a little bit affirms the brother sister dynamic between Emma and Mr. Knightley because like his brother is married to her sister and mm-hmm. it like technically makes them in-laws. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a little weird. And he also talks here about how he's 16 years older than her, but how the gap between them has narrowed with time and they they make up in this scene. Then we cut to Christmas and in the carriage, Emma tells Elton that Harriet is ill and won't be coming and he looks like very fake sad and then he's like oh but it's fine I like a small party anyway and Emma's like oh great and then we get uh you know the scene I do think that like this whole party and carriage ride before and after is like peak Mr. Elton slash peak Alan coming like I think he's just so perfect and so thirsty in the in these scenes so thirsty and he kind of just lets himself be like finally like I have a moment (laughs) alone with Emma Woodhouse I'm going for it and it's just like it's different from Mr. Collins cringe but it's like kind of my equivalent where he's like Mm -hmm. target acquired and she's like no I'm not (laughs) don't hit me (laughs) my favorite moment of this movie has to be the moment where he stops acting as Mr. Elton and is just Ellen coming for a moment where they're at the party and she's sitting with Mr. Knightley and he just places himself so gently between the two of them. And I was like, that is not Mr. Elton. That is Ellen coming, coming to life for in this movie for a moment. He sits down and he says, I hope I'm not intruding. <laughs> and he, the way he says it, he's like, I hope I'm not intruding. Like, <laughs> I love it. So like, he's so good in that moment because... <laughs> I feel like that's where, like, if you, like, watch the gears turn in his head, he's like, this is going to work. Like, he's got schemes of his own that have not been working. Like, like Emma's kind of been doing her own scheming and it's not been working. He's been doing his own scheming and it's not working. And, like, there's even that moment where she's like, would you please, like, she she does him the honor of giving him a task of, like, getting her punch. And he's like, I'll be so fast. And she's like, you don't have to be that fast. You know, how could I miss you if you're not gone for very long? And it's just like a very funny um, misinterpretation of like how everyone feels about each other. Mm. So, yeah, there's the the villain origin story music that starts playing after she rejects him and he's angsting and he he gets out and he slams the door and we're like, oh no, what's he going to do? Another failing of this movie, I think, is that there isn't enough of um, 
God, not that I want more Mr. Elton, but I feel like his his arc isn't enough. Um, like later on, he he snubs Harriet, but he doesn't like. He's not as annoying as I wish he should be. There's not nearly enough Augusta, Augusta Hawkins in this film. Yeah, yeah, which we'll get to. Augusta. Augusta. No, but this is this is an Augusta Elton stan group right here like yolanda and I were, <gasps> well we were talking about it and like for like because she's awful right but she's so perfectly awful like she's great um, at it yeah so on our podcast we love to hate augusta hawkins to the point where i have an augusta voice that i do where i'm like Mr. Knightley, you're so funny. Ugh, oh my God. So like, I just like, I just feel like it'd be like such a cute little moment if I was able to like pick some strawberries at your estate. Like you're, you know, you don't have a wife or anything. So you wouldn't mind. I'll be like the like mistress of your house. It would be like so cute. Like so cute for a moment. So cute. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. That's how I see Augusta. <laughs> so the next day, Emma comes to see Mrs. Weston and she's like, you're never going to believe what happened. And Mrs. Weston's like, Elton's in love with you. And she's like, fucking, I, yeah, I guess everyone else knew but me. And she's like, I'm never going to match make again because she's so devastated that he doesn't love Harriet. And then she's like, but who could I find for Harriet? And she's like, Emma, take it down a notch. Um, And she's worried about how she's going to tell her. And this is the first of several very good scene transitions in a row. I think they're good. They're corny, but they're good. Where she's like, yes, you're right. I'll just say Harriet. And then cut to her telling Harriet, um, Mr. Elton has gone away. And in fact, he was in love with me and not you. And Harriet takes it very well. She's like, I never thought, I mean, very well, like, quote unquote, well, she is like, I wouldn't, I would never blame you for this. Uh, You're a really good friend forever thinking that it would be possible that he would love me. Poor Harriet of just like really looking at Emma of like, you are my guiding true light through all of life and I will look to you for every right answer. If you tell me that he doesn't love me, so it be <laughs> like that sort of thing. So it's a poor thing yeah. where she just like really is relying on Emma for everything at this point. And so for Emma to have to deliver this bad news, like, yes, it's devastating for Emma, but also Emma's just trying to find like, what's what's the next solution? What's what's then who's the next guy we're going to find for you? It's interesting because, you know, earlier we were talking about how Harriet just kind of like lets life happen to her. And in a, in a weird way, I feel like these these like sort of love arcs are ultimately pretty good for her because like Robert Martin is like her number one choice. Like, I think it's like very special given how Harriet kind of sees herself that like her first choice wants her as her first choice. And then Emma comes along and says, you can do better. And she's like, well, then I guess I can do better. And so she never had like real feelings for Elton, but I I think this it's like a wounded ego situation where she's like, Oh no, like he didn't like me. Like, of course not. He not, whatever. And of course, later on, we're going to have like a, a pretty big crush on nightly for saving her the way that he did. And you, you can't blame her. You can't blame her for like forming r- real feelings for Knightley. Um, but it, it's just like interesting in this moment. I feel like she's kind of overcoming an ego bruise and also like, oh, no, the guy that Emma picked, you know, she's we're going to get there again. And I feel like it'll I feel like these hurdles ultimately really like point her more than ever towards um, Mr. Martin by the end of the film. And she's like, he was always my choice. 
he's still my choice. I actually think he's perfect and I, I'm going to go for it instead of just kind of like letting it happen. Totally. So the next thing is Emma's trying to distract her with puppies, but nothing can distract her from her devastation over Mr. Elton. So Emma brings her to the Bateses because there she won't be able to get a word in at all. Um, but unfortunately, there is a letter from Mrs. Cole about Mr. Elton. And they're like, OK, we need to pivot. We need to pivot. Oh, good. She has a letter from Jane. And Jane is coming to visit. Then we get another one of those nice cuts where Emma's like, she's like, you must sit right there and say. And then we cut to her sitting right there and saying, uh, welcome to Jane or whatever. Jane, hot, not frail. Jane, Lady Featherington. <gasps> oh, shut. Jane, Lady oh, okay. Featherington from Bridgerton. Oh, the Lady Featherington. What? Take a moment. Think about I it. I guess I don't recognize her with all the feathers. That's why. <laughs> take take a moment. That is definitely Lady Featherington from Bridgerton. I'm actually like Googling her. Me right. too. Yeah. I'm like looking her up. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Same actress. I'm so <gasps> pleased. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's oh my gosh, losing she's it. Gorgeous. No, she is hot. So hot. hot. So hot. Oh my gosh. It was in front of me the whole time. Wow. That's bonkers. Yeah. Recovering. Um, she is so <laughs> hot. She is curvy. She's got like this dark hair, the arched eyebrows. Um, I pictured Jane being a little more like frail because. That's how she's yeah. always described, but this Jane is not. I love Polly Walker. I think she gives a tremendous performance here with very little. Um, I think she is weird casting for Jane for exactly the same reason. She's very strong and sturdy and high status as an actress. Um, I mean, she's physically and emotionally very different from Emma. She's like, you know, I feel like they've been set up as character foils to each other, mostly because Emma's like competitive with her in a way that I think we never really find out. Or we kind of assume like Jane Fairfax does not see Emma even remotely as a threat. But like, think about who Frank Churchill's looking at, like bone broth Gwyneth Paltrow, who's like that skinny, or like curvaceous, dark, curly haired Polly Walker, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, that's, they're not yeah. the same. He's not choosing between like two of the same kind of woman. Reading the books, though, you kind of feel like Polly Walker is more like that, like sturdy, sure of herself, confident, beautiful woman would be like a better fit for Emma. And then Gwyneth Paltrow as sort of waifish and quiet and stern would be a great Jane Fairfax. I don't love the way they're cast here in the opposite, but I do think that Polly Walker gives an excellent performance as Jane despite the fact that she's not really in the film much and that she's maybe a weird choice. Yeah. She's very political with her answers. I love her approach to that and her delivery of everything of like, yes, like Frank Churchill is a man and he is, he lives in this town. Correct. And that sort of thing. So yeah, she is, she's great in this movie. Diplomatic. Yes. And Emma hates her diplomacy. Um, we jump to her, complaining about it to Knightley and being like, she's impossible. And he's like, all right, let's talk about something else. I have some news. I know how you like news. Um, and Emma's like, oh, yes, I do like news. And he says, Mr. Elton is going to marry Thunder. <laughs> there always is one moment with Thunder in these movies. Drama. Drama. Then we cut to Harriet, who got caught in the storm, running to her 
to tell her that she ran into the Martins at the store. And we get a flashback of this and we find out that Mr. Martin read the book and he like ran outside in the rain, holds his hat over her and tells her she should take the other route because one way is flooded and it's very sweet and it's clear that Harriet still loves him. That was a very cute moment of him holding the hat over her and then of feeling like, I don't know, maybe he thought like, maybe because I didn't read the book, that's why she denied me. And so he's like, he's still just trying to like, still pursue her without actively pursuing her because like, he doesn't want to like propose again and get another rejection. He's just like, I'll just stand here, just be like in her peripheral vision. And then maybe she'll think of me again. (laughs) Our boy Robbie. Yeah. The next day, Emma is riding in her carriage through a giant puddle and her wheel breaks and she is stuck. And who should ride up but Frank Churchill? Or Hillary Clinton, depending on who has that haircut. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, And we, we already discussed how we feel about him, but we do get this moment where she's like, my wheel's broken. And he says, I guess you'll have to live here then. Bye bye. Which I thought was hilarious. But then he you know, helps her up and brings her away from the puddle. Later, Emma runs into Miss Bates in town and she's like, yeah, I did meet Frank. And Miss Bates is asking about him and saying she won't see him until the Coles party. And Emma's like, what party? And then we get this Emma freaking out about not being invited to a party montage, which is so good. Emma is spiraling. She's like checking the mail every day. And her dad is like, has the mail come? And she's like, no, I never care about the mail. And then she like (laughs) pulls it out from under a scarf that she had it hidden under. It is peak Emma. Actually, that brings us to about halfway through the movie. So we are going to do our study questions really quick and then we'll bring you two back for a part two so listeners don't go anywhere or do go anywhere because it'll be two weeks until you get the next episode but yeah let's dive into those study questions okay uh so we always do standbys for the film so the first question is favorite line delivery so far i have a couple one being miss bates every time she yells something to mrs bates as like kind of a end of her sentence she's like oh that was lovely pork that you sent us right mother pork (laughs) she's just like pork and then uh she does a a couple of those where she's like uh not jane's day for writing uh she's so funny that was one another one is harriet reading the riddle from mr elton and saying is it about sharks (laughs) (laughs) that's really funny I think I like the moment between Harriet and and Robert Martin of like him warning her, like, you have to go by the stables and that sort of thing, just because of the moment of the intimacy of like, they're a little bit leaning in and he has he's holding the hat over her. The rain's coming down. It's romantic. And they both have feelings for each other, but they can't say it. So I liked I like that delivery. Yeah, I like that one, too. And I also like when Knightley is warning Emma that there's no way Mr. Elton is like seriously interested in Harriet. He has this line where he's like, you know, he may talk romantically, but he will act rationally. And I like the Mm -hmm. way he kind of like, it's so British the way he says that. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, My favorite line is not a line, but it is that moment that Alan Cummings sits down between (laughs) Knightley and Emma and he just like plops himself down. He's like, I hope I'm not intruding. (laughs) I think that moment is just like the most entertaining moment of the first half of this film. It's so good. And there's one more for me just because we just talked about it and because I think that I want to give 
Ewan McGregor a little bit of credit for this movie, but I just love when he says, I guess you'll just have to live here then. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay, next question. Notable uh, additions to the storyline via the movie? It can be additions or exclusions. So um, I think um, a decently notable exclusion is Emma's sort of perkiness um, because I think Paltrow plays her with a more grown-up air like you do think she could be pitching you on some sort of goop but cream in this film as opposed to like prancing around being like I'm a matchmaker I'm a matchmaker and I'm gonna set everyone up which is like a little bit more like how I see Emma yeah I I agree with that I think Emma here is softer and I think she's like a little more gentle Mm -hmm. in how she approaches everything she's less like the the entitled uh, young woman that maybe she is more of in the book and and her I think they're trying to justify more of her meddling ways of like yeah she really does mean well and she really wants the best for people and I think that's not so much in the book where like she thinks like oh I know what's best for everyone therefore I will make these decisions for them but here like she's like yeah she's trying to make like a real difference but she keeps failing. Yeah, and you kind of get the sense in the book if it's like Emma thinks that Highbury is her dollhouse and she's like playing with her little dolls. Yeah. Yes. And trying to make them kiss. Yeah, I feel I the same answer as Yolanda. Just sort of like her, like the way that Gwyneth Paltrow plays her um, versus like how she is in the book. Yeah. Um, also, pour one out for our guy, John Knightley, the sassiest of all sassy characters. <laughs> yeah, like a, a really tragic loss of him like we barely even get to see him and Isabella we don't get to get that relationship uh so much as just like knowing that they exist and next question uh best part of the film so far and worst part of the film so far we can do you can start with either your best or your worst depending if you want to end on a good note or you want to start on a good note (laughs) my best and worst are potentially the same for this half the transitions, they are both the weirdest and the funniest things about this movie so far. The paper mache globe is so strange. The way that it started with like, we're looking at this globe as it floats through an abyss and there's the characters painted on it. And then each time we transition from a scene, it's like zoom in on the globe. We're at Hartfield. Now we're in Highbury. Like, it's very strange. Um, additionally, there are some strange fade outs, like we are watching a made for TV movie. I don't think this was a made for TV movie, so I don't know why they faded out. That's weird. Some of the best ones are the ones where we cut mid sentence from Emma saying something in one scene to in another scene or someone else saying finishing her sentence in the next scene. Those are a very cool, uh, and kind of like quirky way to, transition that I thought was fun and kind of also justifies at the end uh Mrs. Elton turning directly to the camera and talking to it I thought I mean that was weird but it's like sort of in the same world as that yes my favorite part so far is I think probably Tony Collette's performance as Harriet I think it's campy and I think it's fun um and I think she's very entertaining um my least favorite part so far, I, I have to give it to Frank Churchill's wig. Uh, it's just, it pains me. I think it's so difficult to make Ewan McGregor look bad and they did it. I don't know how or why, but 
putting that aside, I also, again, I'm not a huge fan of Gwyneth Paltrow's performance of Emma. I think she misses out on what's more fun about the character and she just comes off as sort of a stickler snob, in my opinion, and less like a kind of dumb, loud, rich girl who's spoiled and doesn't pay attention to anyone around her. So that's how I feel so far. I think my favorite moment is the archery scene between Mm. Emma and Knightley. Like, I think, like, because I I just think that there's, like, a lot of scenes in this film that I just kind of, like, I watch and then I forget about them. And this is the, I feel like, to me, it's kind of the most iconic of, like, the whole film. Like, her dress and, and the archery and the sort of, like, power dynamic and the opinions of them, like, shifting and, and being reflected in the archery. I think it's a great, really active scene. So I, I love that. Least favorite. I mean, I it, it sucks. Sorry, kind of, like, watching. Like, it's kind of funny watching um, Alan Cumming as Mr. Elton sort of, like, react poorly to being turned down. But I'm always, like, ugh. Like, it's, it's, it's just kind of, like, also, like, hard as the dynamic of, like, they were both so wrong about how she felt about him and she like she had to just say it and then she had to tell Harriet like that's kind of my least favorite part when people get their feelings hurt it's my least favorite <laughs> yeah oh god I'm gonna focus less less on the characters more like as a as a film um but I think my least and favorite my my least favorite and favorite part is the cinematography because the indoor shots just feel so cramped and so dark and so crowded that it feels like you're just like, could they not have opened it up a little bit more just to feel like a little bit more of like, where's the room and who's everyone in there? But then the outdoor shots, anything outside or anything with like, it seems like they must have used um, like golden hour light because there's like such a softness around all the characters, especially with Gwyneth Paltrow and Emma, like the glowing light around her and with her like blonde hair and everything, it looks really soft and light. But then everything inside just feels like so (laughs) dull in comparison. So the two contrasts there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us for part one of uh, what will be two parts of talking about the 1996 adaptation of Emma starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Listeners, for next time, we will be wrapping up our coverage of this movie. So never fear. We will have so much more to say about Frank Churchill's wig and whether or not if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more was a a necessary inclusion in the final scene or not. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Yolanda and Jillian. Uh, Do you guys want to tell our listeners where they can find you and your podcast? Sure. I mean, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, threads, Patreon, and TikTok at The Pemberley. And you can email us comments or questions at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. And we're across all pod- podcast platforms. You can just search the Pemberley podcast. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, anything else before we wrap up today, Molly? I don't think so. Okay. Well, until next time, stay proper. And remember, the most incomprehensible thing in the world to a man is a woman who rejects his offer of marriage. Still today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com.
To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.